Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. This series called Turn the Page. And the idea is, what we're trying to do is go through the entire scope of the Bible. And so we're in the Gospels, we're in this Jesus stuff. And what we're talking about as we look at Jesus, as we look at what the Scriptures have to say, is I think we're trying to understand the fact that the Bible isn't about just what happened. The Bible is ultimately, and the Gospels in particular, are about what we're going to do with it. Uh, like, like, I think that so often we get caught up in like, well, what, what was that like, and is this accurate? And the, those are very important questions and, and conversations to have. But I think so often we miss the point that the Bible's like this great mirror. This great mirror held up to you and I, pointing out who we really are, all of our flaws, and yet, and yet, this is the great message of the Bible, that we still get to be a part of this, that we still get to be in on this. You know, you, know, you think about cause and effect. We, we learn that at an early age. If I do X, Y happens. We learn about cause and effect. And so often, so much of our life, ha- life has to do with this. If I behave, you'll love me. If I follow the rules, you'll have affection for me. I'll be good, right? Like this is, this is kind of ingrained in, in so much of our interactions in life. But the gospel is, is so radically and revolutionarily different because it says you are loved, you are accepted, therefore let's move forward. Obedience is that response out of that. Obedience isn't trying to earn anything. And so when we look at today what Jesus has to say, and we see the power that comes with the words of Jesus moving us from apprehension to anticipation, I think we need to remember that. I think we need to recall that. All right, now I'm going to actually go back to my notes because I did that whole tangent and I wasn't supposed to. But I want you to think about the words that you've heard in your life that changed your life. Maybe, maybe those words were was just a word. It was yes. Hey, yes, you're hired. Or, or maybe you're like me, and, and you were you are there, and you're down on your knee, and you're proposing marriage. And you're not sure if she said yes, because she was laughing and crying so much, and 13 years later, here we are, so I guess she said yes. Uh, or maybe, maybe it's that, that line of saying, those words of saying, I'm pregnant. That, that kind of puts the brakes on everything. Or, or maybe the, the, the words say, it's over. Or I have really bad news. I know for me, when I think about some of the words that, were, that have shaped my life, and I think that Heidi saying yes to me and Heidi twice telling me that we're pregnant were, were huge. Another one of those big moments was when someone else said, you should plant a church. Like You should take something that it doesn't exist and help bring it about because God is up to something here. That's crazy. It's, it was stupid then, it's stupid now, but here we are. And when, when I think about these words that have changed us, I think about the ways they impact us in really meaningful ways. I think about the words that we say to ourselves uh, when we're kind of in that in-between stage. I, I remember back to my, my junior year of college, and I was really starting to, to wrestle with my anxiety. Well, not, not wrestle with it. It was really starting to wrestle me down to the mat, and I was not doing anything about it, right? I was not, I was not trying to change, not trying to get better. I was just kind of continuing on. So my life was kind of kind of kind of turned into a mess pretty quick. And it was that place where I felt like I was stuck and, and like I, I didn't want to be in this place anymore, but the next chapter or the next thing or the next opportunity was so far beyond, I can understand, I felt helpless. You don't have to, you, you don't have to 
be an expert. You don't have to live that long of a life to have those feelings. Whether it's with your career, your relationships, or your finances, you feel as though you're stuck, and the next thing, that next break, that next, next rest is so far away. And from time to time, we're, we're sitting in that apprehension, that, that tension, that stress, and we ask simply, what's next? Because we don't know what to do. And th- this is a very important question for us to ask ourselves all the time when we're talking about following Jesus, what's next for us? Because in those points of transition, in those milestones of life, there are choices in front of us that honestly can become oppressively clear. You know, it, we can either do this or not, and, and if not, we're going to face consequences. If not, things are going to fall apart. If not, then, then, then we're not going to get through to the next day. And we, we think about those times where we ask ourselves, what is next? And so today, I'm going to share with you two words that I think have power over all of this. Power to, to really help us move forward. Power to help us experience life and transformation. But before we get there... Before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about where we are in this turn the page story. Because where we are in this story is we're focusing in on Jesus. And so we've made it through the Old Testament. We spent about seven weeks talking about the Old Testament. And we skipped huge swaths of the Bible. We skipped entire books and entire themes. We skipped all of that. But we tried to do is not say that's not important. We try to give the big picture, right? But now we're in the New Testament. Last week we, we introduced this idea, what is the New Testament, what's going on? And we find that the New, New Testament starts with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are named for who wrote them. These are the authors. Two of these guys were eyewitness accounts, eyewitness uh, there with Jesus. Matthew and John were one of the 12, were two of the 12 disciples, two of the 12 apostles. They were with Jesus in his ministry day in, day out. Mark is, is a kind of the second generation apostle. He was somebody who followed around Peter. He's, he's around Paul in the early church stages of things. And he is writing kind of his accounts because he's hearing Peter tell the story of Jesus. He's hearing Paul and all these other eyewitnesses tell the story. And so he's writing it down. Luke is this other kind of second-generation uh, follower of Jesus. Luke is this academic. He's this historian. And his whole goal is to, is to kind of order things. You know, there's some people, when you come across a mess or a big project, some people dive in, some people retreat back, and then other people make a list, right? Luke, would, Luke is a list maker. Luke is making a list. Luke is going to order things out. He said, this was going to happen. So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, and then he writes Acts, the book about the early church. And so this is kind of his big saga of Jesus and the people who followed him in those first few generations. But what we see here in these eyewitness accounts, what we see are the words, actions, and life, death, resurrection of Jesus. You know, they often write about the same event. Sometimes there's details that are a little bit different or, 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 or different wordings or order, but, but ultimately I see them harmonizing the story of Jesus. Uh, John was probably the last one to be written, so it's feasible and if not, it may be even likely that he was aware of the other three. He had that going on, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke probably weren't fully aware of what the other person was doing. You know, they're not really concerned about what happened. They're not in the sense of a biography or, or journalism, but they are concerned with asking that question, well, what's next for you? Well, what are you going to do with this? How are you going to take this forward? And we see this play out very early on with the mother of Jesus 
in Mary. The first time that we meet Mary, we, we pick up that, that she is about 12 or 13 years old. We pick up that she is engaged. She has become an arranged marriage situation, which to us is, you know, how could this possibly happen? She's so young, but in that time it was fairly normal. It was normal culturally for someone that young to be engaged. And when we meet this Mary and we see that there's very little told to us about her. She's young, that she's engaged, and that she's a virgin. That's basically all the details that we get about her. And Luke describes this incredible scene unfolding between Mary and an angel. In Luke chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, it said, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have an angelic vision, an experience with an angel, some sort, of, some sort of heavenly being, some sort of messenger from God, I am like freaking out. I'm just assuming I'm crazy. I'm calling people or I'm not telling anyone. Like I am just in this spot where it's like I am not comforted by this. So of course, Mary, this young girl who's been told and taught all her life the power of experiencing God. And when an angel visits you, this is not something to be messed around with or laughed at. This is something to be taken seriously. So of course, She's troubled at what this might mean. Luke goes on in verse 30. He says, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, if you're in Mary's spot, you're 12, you're 12, and you hear this, and you hear all these promises. He says, you're going to have a baby. This baby is going to be the, the, the one Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for. There's all this language of sitting on the throne of David, ruling over Jacob's descendants. This is kind of the Bible's way of saying, you will be placed on the throne of thrones. You will rule over all. You will have complete and total earthly authority. This is a way of saying, you know what's happening here? You know what's going on? This is bigger than you could even imagine. I can't imagine the apprehension, the anxiety that Mary must be experiencing. I almost picture it as like she's trying to push it down. I, 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 you know, I, I've walked with a woman through pregnancy, but there's some anxiety there, and we weren't 12 right? We weren't in a society lacking modern medicine. I can, ex I can think about the apprehension and the anxiety of this, the weight of this moment, the weight of this moment. But the angel assures her that she'll become pregnant. This baby will be called the son of God. And I can picture Mary standing there and wonder, how is this going to happen? And then the angel says something I think that we often overlook in this passage. We, we, we might read Luke 1 and 2 around Christmas time. I think we miss something, because I know I did. When I, I came back to this, I saw this in Luke 1, verse 37, the angel says this, for no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever, if God says it, it's so. If God speak it, it will happen. What I, what I hear there is, is some peace in the midst of apprehension. Peace in the midst of anxiety. Peace in the midst of, of all this coming apart. This moment for Mary, the stakes are huge. 
She knew that there would be no place for her society. If she's doing the math here, I'm going to become pregnant. I am not married yet. I haven't been with him in that way. Therefore, I'm going to be cast aside. I could literally be executed, be punished for having a child out of wedlock. But instead, instead, this is what Mary says. Verse 38 says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. She's 12. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. May your word be fulfilled. I love the humility. I love the trust. I love just the incredible wonder of that, this moment where Mary is saying, hey, I'm going to demonstrate my faith. I'm going to show that I'm in on this. And we find this confused, frightened 12-year-old that we meet at the beginning of the story is now rejoicing over the opportunity that's been put on her and seeing how the Word of God will transform her life and the entire world. Because I think words have power. God's words have incredible power. This notion, the Word of God, maybe you had a Bible growing up or you still have this Bible and it says the Word of God on it. And, and that's, a, that's a metaphor that encapsulates a lot, but it doesn't just mean that God spoke these words and that's it. What it means is the Word of God has power to transform and change. And yes, the power of the Bible as we have it is, uh, the, the Bible as we have it is full of power, and this is the Word of God. But beyond that, we need to think about the Word of God as having transformative power. In the beginning, how were things made by God speaking? And and throughout the Old Testament, we looked at the prophets. How were people woken up to what God was doing? And they they were shown the errors of their ways by prophets who brought forth the word of God. And then we turn the page of the New Testament. We read that John describes Jesus as the word, this idea that goes beyond just the printed page. We see that God begins to speak to us in a new way. That God shows up in powerful ways, often through what he says through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, but in those last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Bible is such an incredible gift, but what Hebrews is saying here is that yes to all of that, but now look, the personification of the word is this Jesus. God came to earth in the person of Jesus. He spoke words directly into our lives. So when we read the Gospels, we see that there are a lot of things that drew people to Jesus, right? If you're hungry and Jesus is giving out food, you show up. If you have a disability, if you are deaf, if you're blind, if you're not able to walk and Jesus is healing people, you show up. We see how Jesus is drawing people to them, but we also see how his words have power and authority. His words were countercultural and revolutionary. They messed with people's assumptions, and they raised up the oppressed and pushed down the powerful. His words gave life. Jesus' words were so effective that those on the outside of his following, of his followers, would, would remark on this. That in John chapter 6, there's this point where the religious leaders send out guards and, and kind of contract mercenaries to go and arrest Jesus. And they come back empty, empty handed and they say this. He says, We have never heard anyone speak like this. Wasn't it that Jesus was this imposing figure? Wasn't it that he had an army at his back, but that his words had power? The hired guns, the opposition, recognized that there was something undeniable about the man's words. That perhaps he wasn't just a man. That Jesus' words have power in this kind 
of transformation that can happen. And so here's the crazy thing that I believe, and I've staked my life on this, that Jesus still speaks. That this isn't something that happened, this is something that's happening. My understanding, my understanding of the, of the Gospels is it's, it's asking us to say, okay, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? Here's, here's all this. And you can read it for, for just like an understanding of, of, its, uh, of a moral ethic, of a, of a historical perspective, of appreciating ancient you know, cultures. But I think the ultimate goal here, when it was written and now, is what's next? What are you going to do with this? And here's the thing about the words of Jesus. I wish he hadn't said some of them. I wish that there were, there were things that Jesus said, I wish that he would have just taken a pass on this. I wish these, these words had been lost to history. One of the things that he said was to not worry. Jesus tells us not to worry about where our food's going to come from. He says, look around, like, I'm taking care of those birds. You don't think I'm going to take care of you? I, I struggle with that one. He says that we can't love God and money at the same time. He says no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Uh, try to picture this. What's a more awkward conversation starter? One, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Or two, how much money do you get paid? What's your salary? I wish, I wish, because money is that, that, is that raw nerve for us, right? It's that raw nerve for us that we don't want to talk about that, but yet Jesus says you can't serve one or the other. He doesn't say money is bad, but he says you can't serve. You must be fully devoted to one or the other. You can't be devoted to both. Jesus implies that if we put all of our focus on money, then we're not actually being served by it. We are serving it. It becomes the idol. It becomes the God that we worship. Jesus also says this, that we have to take sin seriously. Jesus says at one point that if your eye causes you to sin, and of course, by happenstance, this is right after Jesus tells a group of people about how lust is the same as committing adultery. So surely these aren't connected at all, right? But he says if your eye causes you to sin, to gouge it out and throw it in the fire. He's speaking hyperbolic. I don't think he's actually telling us to do that. But what he is saying is that we have to take sin seriously. We can't explain it away. There's not just some sort of, you, know, you do these five things and you get your life a little bit better, then you're good. No, he says we must take sin seriously because it is the disruption in our relationship with God. It is the thing that prevents us from connecting with God fully. I wish Jesus hadn't told me to love my neighbors i got pretty good neighbors now, but if I take the definition of neighbors, that means everybody I come in contact with. We're singing the song Tremble, and one of the opening verse lines talks about how calm the rage inside. That, that as Jesus' words speak truth and calm the sea, I, I, guys, I have to be honest, like rage is, is kind of one of my things. It's one of my things where I can get sideways. And all of a sudden, I'm raising my voice with my kids and yelling at people as I'm driving because they went like this and I wanted to go like this or whatever it was. Like, like, like this, like, like in all seriousness, the rage, like that, that's a problem for me. Like anger is, is an issue for me. And yet Jesus tells me to love my neighbor. I wish he hadn't said that. There are plenty of other things. He tells us to turn the other cheek. He tells us to love our enemies. He tells us to set aside time to rest. For some of us, that's really, really hard. He tells us to take up our cross, an instrument of execution, to take up our cross, to go along that path, that path of death and service, and to follow him there. He doesn't say make, make great of yourself. He doesn't say get this incredible platform so you can spread this. He says to take this path 
of most resistance, this path of self-denial, this path of your cross and follow him. He doesn't tell us to merely fill our heads with knowledge and learn about Jesus, but to trust him fully, to fully go forward, to fully not just read and study the words, but fully and completely be changed by these words. This is a cheesy analogy, so you have to forgive me, but what else do you expect, right? Following Jesus, I think, can be sometimes like getting in a hammock. Remember the first time you got in a hammock? Or I'm sorry, remember the first time you fell out of a hammock? Right? Like, like it's, just, it's just not comfortable. Like, like, I think Jim Gaffigan has this joke, like, if you ever get in a hammock with another person, you better be dating them, because by the end, you will be, you know? Um, anyway, but, but this idea that, you know, when you get in a hammock, you get kind of, kind of try to ease into it, it slides out from under you. The only way to really get in a hammock is to just trust that the thing's going to take care of you. And as somebody whose who's chairs and uh, other, other things that you would sit on or lay down on haven't always supported my fullness, you know, I, I, can, I, can, I can struggle with that at times. Daniel liked that one. If I make Daniel laugh, I know that I probably went too far, but that's all right. Anyway, but, but getting into a hammock, like, that's, that's, a, that's something you have to just do. You can't just you can't ease into it. It's not halfway in, halfway out. You have to fully get in there. You have to fully get in there. So many of Jesus' words at least make me apprehensive. Like they give me anxiety. How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to take sin seriously when I got my own sin that I'm really comfortable with? How am I supposed to take sin seriously when I love people, I love people, and they're struggling, and how easy it would be for me to say it's not that big of a deal? How am I supposed to, to love my neighbor when they're jerks and inconsiderate, when they're mean to my kids? How am I supposed to turn the other cheek when it feels so good to seek revenge, even the little ways? How am I supposed to, to not love money when I have this urge, desire, and I think some of it is very good to provide for those that I love? These words make me nervous. They give me stress. They give me apprehension. How am I supposed to do this? Now, this isn't some sort of like cliche of just, well, just let God take care of it, let go of it. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. See, see, I think that what we have to understand is that when we take hold of the words of Jesus, we say, yep, I believe you, I trust you, I'm in on this, I'm completely giving into this, I'm completely going down this path. I think what we're saying is we are recognizing that the words of Jesus have power and they're better. They have power to change us, but not only that, they're for our benefit. It's us saying, you know what, this is something better that I want to go down this path because ultimately, ultimately, I think, I think those two words that are so important, those two words that change everything for me are simply this, Jesus said. These two words are the most powerful, the most life-transforming words we could ever encounter because, because I think that when we, we fully grasp what this means, the God of the universe came to us and spoke truth and lived truth and showed us truth. And we have it. It's not just, it's not just like this long game of telephone over 2,000 years, but we, we have reliable accounts of this. And that's amazing, but the question that has to follow is what are you going to do with this? See, Jesus said words. So when we follow Jesus, your first, first glance at this, or when you come back to this, this idea of Jesus, what he says, it may cause apprehension. But I believe that following Jesus is about moving from apprehension to anticipation. Because apprehension says, how am I going to do this? 
Anticipation says, what is God going to do? Apprehension says, I can't do this. Anticipation says, it's going to be really cool to see what God does with this. So I, I think about this for my, my life. I, 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 can, I can be that guy that creates a list. Well, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this, and we'll be good. But I can also be the guy that encounters a big mess, a big task, and just kind of throws up his hands like, I'm just going to go take a nap. Right? I'm just going to do something to distract myself. And what I find myself doing is I rely more and more and more on myself. How am I going to do this? I don't, I don't do anything. I just sit there. Or I just make a plan, but I never follow through. But this idea of saying the power of the words of Jesus isn't this idea that you should feel guilt and shame when Jesus says to love your neighbors because you don't. It's to say, God, you're calling me to love my neighbors. I don't know how this is going to look. I don't know what to do, but I'm trusting that this is better because you said it and you have power behind those words. So therefore, I get to say, all right, I'm in. I'm going to fully trust you. I'm going to fully go into this, and I have no idea how this is going to play out, but I realize this is better. See, I've seen this play out. I can read the words of Jesus and take, home, take hope, but I can also look at what Jesus has done in my life, and I can look at what Jesus has done in the life of so many people, and I can see that I need to be moving from apprehension to anticipation. We, we go through that list of things that Jesus said that probably caused us some worry, some apprehension. He tells us not to worry. He tells us don't worship money. He tells us to take sin seriously. He tells us to love our neighbor, to love our enemies, which oddly can sometimes be the same person. He tells us to turn the other cheek. He tells us to learn to rest. He tells us to take up our cross and follow him. And if we leave that up there on the screen and you look at that list and you think about what ways in which those things cause you anxiety and apprehension, when you look at those, those things, you pick one and you say, I'm going to do that if you're like me, you'll start immediately thinking about all the ways you can't do that. And, and you'll feel overwhelmed. Maybe you feel some guilt. Maybe you feel some shame. Because you'll say, yeah, I should do those things, but, but I can't do those things. My challenge to you is this. To pick one of those. To pick one of those things that Jesus told us to do. To recognize you can't do them. To recognize that there's no way you can accomplish those things. To choose one of those things and say to yourself... How am I going to fully follow Jesus in this? How am I going to step into this? How am I going to show trust? What words do you need just to fall back into the power of the words of Jesus when he tells you not to worry and say, I have no idea how I'm going to do this, but I'm trusting that God will show us how to do this. Again, it's not some cliche of let go and let God. It's understanding that there's something better moving forward. There's something better here. You know, what if... What if what Jesus said was really better for you? The motivation that I think God has for sending Jesus, for teaching this, for giving us these powerful words, isn't to get you and I to behave better. That's not the goal here, is not behavior management. The goal here isn't just to make sure you guys show up on Sundays and you're generous with your money and you help out and you volunteer. That's not what this is about. What, what, is, what is the motivation? What is the thing behind the thing? Why is Jesus telling us to do these things? Why is Jesus telling us to do these things that cause apprehension and cause worry? Because they're better. Because they're better. 
This is the gospel message. The gospel message isn't behave, so I will love you. It's I love you, so behave. I love you, so experience this more. I love you, so, so behavior becomes a secondary thing to experiencing the full life I have to offer. So whatever your words, whatever your word, whatever the thing that you feel like when I follow Jesus, there's apprehension, there's anxiety. I don't know how I can do it. Maybe the first thing you need to do to quote Mary is to say, may your word to me be fulfilled. Because guess what? All this is to you. It's to me. May it be fulfilled. May it be realized. May it be accomplished. Mary took hold of this word from God and her apprehension turned into, it turned, it turned into anticipation. Through her, the word of God, Jesus, comes into the world. So may we allow the words Jesus said to transform our lives. Even when we doubt, even when we fear, even when we have apprehension, may we trust fully, may we trust fully in these words, these words that never fail. Because what is the name that the angel tells Mary to give this child, Emmanuel, God with us? We trust in this. We trust in it's better, not because we were just told to do so, but because we're led to do so, because we're not alone. We're not alone. And how do we move? How am I going to do this? I can't wait to see how God does this. I'm going to invite the band up. As the band comes up, and we're going to, we're going to step into this time of kind of response and kind of considering things and, and ultimately taking communion, if that's something you need.